0: All right, here we go, Maid of Honor, Part 2. Just a quick note before we get into the meat of it. The music in this recap is a theme that was played several times in Part 1 and will be heard again several times in Part 2, particularly at the very end when Audrey and Diane are surveying the remains of the castle. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be the Kasnia theme or the Princess Audrey theme, but either way it would serve either purpose. It plays in scenes which deal with the stability of the country and the, the heritage of the country and scenes in which Audrey does something heroic or empowering. So there you go. It's it's quite a nice piece of music actually. It uh it has a sense of sort of majesty about it. And in case I forget to mention later, Phil Morris of course is fantastic as Vandal Savage. Phil Morris is best known to modern audiences, uh, in all likelihood from Seinfeld, and since I never watched Seinfeld, I don't know particularly who he played there, but supposedly that's the case. And uh, also had a starring role in the Mission Impossible remake series, TV series that aired in the early 90s, and has had numerous roles in various Star Trek series, and has appeared in documentaries about Star Trek and so on. In this role, they sort of, in this episode, rather, they sort of recast Vandal Savage as a bit of a James Bond villain, and that was done on purpose. Bruce Timm is a big James Bond fan, and in this episode, Vandal Savage is basically Blofeld, James Bond's primary nemesis from the the novels and the movies. The sort of suit, or vest, or whatever you want to call it, ensemble that he has is, is pure Blofeld, and the way he just sort of sits on thrones and tenses fingers like that is almost reminiscent of, of mr burns but it's they're going for blofeld this scene was deleted out of a lot of the airings on cartoon network when they would air the show on widescreen they would often trim certain scenes for some reason and this was the one from maid of honor that got the axe i always felt it was a nice little scene between the two of them that shows their camaraderie and this little smile of batman's here shows his affection for and how far he's willing to go to help her. Wonder Woman's theme plays throughout this aerial battle here, and Batman's theme can be heard when he shows up in the Batplane. TMS Explosion The CG in this scene is, it has to be said, is is pretty poor. The CG made some pretty big strides, especially by the time they got to the later seasons of Justice League Unlimited, but the CG in this scene, I feel, is pretty poor. Just the way the planes maneuver. If you look at like, the way the bat plane banks and so on. Not so much there, because I think those were drawn. But when it banks in a second to redirect the missile into another plane, it just doesn't look like it has the mass, the inertia, that a normal plane should. Right there. <laughs> it looks almost like you can feel it screeching around a turn like it's a car. The way they cut the scenes together in a second here, it's a a—it's not a new device to sort of juxtapose two scenes with opposite feels and, and emotions, in this case a, a very tender yet somewhat ominous wedding ceremony and a bloodthirsty battle, but it works quite well here. Really heightens the tension. And I've always felt that the, <laughs> the the little spiel that the, I don't know, priest or whatever he's supposed to be here goes through is is a bit of a downer for a wedding. <laughs> the fear of God. And so I'm like, okay, man, you're really draining all the passion out of this little get-together. There goes bat Batplane number 47. It's been said that episodes written by Dwayne McDuffie portray Wonder Woman in a much more powerful and confident light than episodes written by by the other staff writers, and that's true to a certain extent. I felt that the portrayal of Wonder Woman grew more consistent over the series, but I will grant that the Dwayne McDuffie written episodes tend to portray her as being a lot more capable and a lot more three-dimensional. It's a great line by Vandal Savage. Audrey, uh, it's been theorized by several fans, is based on Paris Hilton. It's not the case. What, what some fans believe is because she's sort of a, a spoiled debutante who sort of travels the world and attends parties and doesn't really do anything or contribute contribute anything of value, then ergo she must be based on Paris Hilton. And her sort of skinny-as-a-rail uh, physique might tend to support that, but Dwayne McDuffie has said, when he wrote this episode, he had no idea who Paris Hilton was. She is, in fact, based on Audrey Hepburn, a famous movie actress from decades ago who would often play roles which required gravitas, and yet would mix in some wacky humor. Wonder Woman being restrained in various ways is a convention that goes all the way back to the very, very first Wonder Woman comics by William Moulton Marsden and H.G. Peter. The idea originally, and this ties into the sort of, it must be said, sadomasochistic and outright bizarre tone of many of the earliest Wonder Woman stories, but the idea originally was that when Wonder Woman's bracelets were bound together with a chain, she would lose all of her powers. And it seems overtly sexist today that you could rob a woman of her power by, you know, binding her hands together. And, and here, her, it's not like her hands are bound together, but the motif of Wonder Woman being restrained has... A very long and storied history. Hmm, I never noticed this command center before. It's just strange because it seems to employ about 300 people. It's like right below her bedroom. You'd think she'd wonder why like a quarter of her military staff was being redirected into this one area when she doesn't have any ongoing military operations, but whatever. uh, There's a deleted scene on the Season 2 box set where Vandal Savage not only sits down and grabs that scepter, he also places this really gaudy-looking crown on his head. I guess they just felt that was way too over the top. Probably right. You kind of get the feel, much like you got back in The Brave and the Bull, that it was going to be a two-man show. The first part of The Brave and the Bull was just flashing Green Lantern, and the first part of Maid of Honor is just Batman and Wonder Woman. You kind of feel that they might go through a whole two-parter with just the two members. But in both cases, they felt compelled to include other characters and sort of broaden the scope of the story a bit. They wouldn't really get to the point where they felt comfortable doing stories with a much more intimate scope Until they got to Justice League Unlimited with the the running time cut in half, they felt they could do stories in a bit of a different vein. The technology behind a railgun is explained quite well here by Vandal Savage, isn't it? it? It is an actual technology that does exist and has been tested in various ways for possible future use in military conflicts. and for scientific endeavors and things of that nature, but it isn't actual technology. This isn't this isn't Moonraker, where the villain has some crazy technology in outer space that could never exist. Here, even though they show a lot of the sailors swimming back up to the surface, you kind of got to assume that most of them died. I mean... When a ship like that goes underwater, not everybody is going to be able to make it back out. The scene where Wonder Woman, which I've gone by now, where Wonder Woman is talking to Audrey while she's imprisoned and ends up screaming at her, he has to be stopped, uh is quite characteristic of Susan Eisenberg's improvement in the role of Wonder Woman, which took place. Her improvement largely seemed to take place over the course of Season 2, so that by the time you got to Justice League Unlimited, she was very, very comfortable in the role. But something that seemed to stand out to me is that when you have a character with a sense of nobility and a sense of superiority almost to them, there's a, a temptation on the part of the actors, I believe, to portray that as, as sort of a stiffness. And you'll, when you get a character which has that certain bearing, sometimes the actors will end up coming off more stiff than regal. And I believe that's part of the problem, what happened in the first season with Susan Eisenberg, and to a certain extent George Newburn, where the character was sort of hands on his hips, somewhat standard action hero dialogue in season one and as a consequence came off rather stiff and didn't get a lot of compliments from fans but in season two Wonder Woman was sort of allowed to let her hair down so to speak a bit more and you would see her out of costume you'd see her flirting with Batman or partying with Audrey and then later on Justice League Unlimited you'd see her in street clothes and you'd see her get to show a bit more of her temper and a bit more of her passion and and Susan Eisenberg really seemed to took, take to the role a lot more when she had those more human emotions to play, as opposed to the sort of abstract notion of playing a character from a mystical island with no men, which can probably, I would I would imagine, be a little hard to get a handle on if you're an actor. So she improved by leaps and bounds in this season. This I always felt somewhat undercut star-crossed the shock of having the javelin being blown up in starcross is somewhat diminished by the fact that it had already blown up earlier in the season it's not very shocking that it blows up in starcross if we know that they can just replace it that easily here we are about to go into vandal savage's origin which is taken more or less verbatim from the comics the idea, of course, is that he was a caveman, a Cro-Magnon man, who was bathed in the radiation from an asteroid, and became not only highly intelligent but also immortal. The idea that he instantly heals from any wound—I'm not sure—is completely true to the concept, to, to the comics. Although it's—it's it's obviously true to the concept of him being immortal. In the comics, his immortality doesn't come quite so easily to him. He, He's not allowed to take the more passive role that he takes here, where he heals instantly. In the comics, he's often forced to replace his organs with those from his many, many descendants, because he's fathered many children over the millennia, such that a significant portion of the human population is now, albeit distantly, related to him. And he can harvest their organs and their blood and so on and so forth to rejuvenate his body as it starts to deteriorate. Whereas here in the cartoon, since they probably felt that would be far too grotesque for a cartoon, he simply heals instantly, which is probably a much better visual shorthand for it when you don't have as much exposition. You can't spend as much time on exposition. It does allow you to get creepy shots like this. This episode ties into a Batman movie, Mystery of the Batwoman, which was released around the same time and featured some hints that villains in Gotham, namely Penguin and Rupert Thorne, were shipping weapons to Casnia. Now it's led some to hypothesize that that movie and this episode take place around the same time and that what Penguin and Thorn are actually doing is supplying weapons to Vandal Savage in preparation for his takeover. But it could also be given Kasnia's history of conflict that it could take place just about anywhere, and people in Kasnia always seem to be acquiring illegal weapons, so that's not really conclusive. But nonetheless, it came out around the time of this episode, so the connection is there if you want to see it. Yeah, let's all go over and investigate that smoking hole in the wall. I love the little breakout sequence here. Just the way the two characters are so interdependent in their fighting. Batman immediately knows to duck and Wonder Woman immediately clues in on what he's doing, what he's doing and takes the guy out. Now the bit here where Flash gets expelled into space has drawn a lot of criticism from the fans on the internet where, well, I guess it's not right there it's coming up in a second though, but I'll talk about it for a bit so it'll overlap eventually. Uh, Where he gets thrown out into space some fans have commented, well, you know, anybody who knows anything about science would know that his lungs would explode, or anybody that knows anything about science would know that he would implode, or that he would die instantly, that his eyeballs would explode or something. And the fact that all of that would be too gruesome for a cartoon aside, it would also not be accurate. Dwayne McDuffie, the writer of this episode, actually has a master's degree in physics. And his explanation, which has been backed up by studies done by NASA and so on, is that your average human being, in good health, could survive for up to 90 seconds in the vacuum of space. You would not be able to breathe, of course, because there's no air in space, and you would get an extreme sunburn because of the unfiltered UV radiation coming from the sun, but it's not like you would pop like a balloon. That's just an invention of bad sci-fi movies. So the fact that flashes outside for a little under a minute and is more or less healthy afterwards... You can chalk the fact you can chalk up the fact that he recovers so quickly to his accelerated metabolism, but the fact that he survives period is not outside the realm of possibility. Dwayne McDuffie's one self-admitted error, however, is of course that he should not be cold, but rather burnt after being brought back inside. character of Vox is unique to the animated series, for anyone who's wondering. He's based vaguely on a few DC Comics villains. The idea of being able to project powerful sound waves from your mouth is not a terribly original concept, and so comparisons have been drawn to several DC villains, but the name and the look are unique to this. I like the way that John calls him Buddy there. It's a very, very well-choreographed fight scene coming up. Vandal Savage can come off as a bit of a loser in this series, given the fact that the Justice League defeats his plans twice, and then in Hereafter, even when his plan does succeed, he later ends up regretting it and moping about it and Due to Superman fixing the time stream, it never ends up even happening. But people who only know Vandal Savage from the cartoon might be interested to know that he has succeeded in his plans many, many times. A lot of the great rulers and dictators and conquerors throughout human history, according to comics continuity, of course, were actually Vandal Savage in disguise. He was Genghis Khan. He was Vlad the Impaler. He was Joseph Stalin. So he has ruled the world, or at least sections of it, many times in the past, but he knows that no one can hold on to power forever, so every now and then he fakes his own death, fades away into obscurity, waits until the time is right, and then tries again, until such time as he's able to secure a permanent rule over the earth. Clearly not the best in terms of hand-to-hand combat, though. It's been pointed out that the little adventure these three have in space is pretty pointless, given the fact that they don't end up stopping the railgun from discharging. I suppose they do end up rescuing the astronauts, but they were not being tortured or physically beaten in any way by their captors, so they weren't in any immediate danger. They could have easily been rescued after the situation was diffused. I love the way Batman's smashed the screen with a Batarang just to prevent Savage from making any corrections. And some people have said that they left King Gustav to die, but if you look closely, one of the guards is carrying a purple robed figure which of course is King Gustav I love the way Batman shields Audrey and then Wonder Woman shields Batman now you gotta think they'd take some heat I'm surprised this didn't come up in the Cadmus arc Surprised, among Waller's list of grievances with the League one of them wasn't blowing up the International Space Station for no good reason if they're just going to blow up stuff because they think people might misuse it, (laughs) are they really any different from the Justice Lords? Now, Audrey never appeared again, but there are a couple of mentions of Queen Audrey in future episodes, so... We know at least that, you know, she's not immediately assassinated, and we know from the Great Brain Robbery in Season 5, that, according to Sinestro, Kasnia is quote-unquote recently reunited, so the civil war that we see in Hawk and Dove that ensues from this little conflict is eventually resolved. But when we next hear of Kasnia and the Batman Beyond pilot, Rebirth, a dignitary from Kasnia, Vilmos Egan's, arrives in Gotham to obtain a horrible nerve gas from Wayne Power's Industries. so clearly Casnia's problems aren't over at the end of this episode. So all in all, an excellent, excellent spotlight episode for Wonder Woman, who has gotten a somewhat uh, lukewarm reception from fans for her portrayal in this series. Some felt that she was too angry, others felt she was too bland, but I've always felt, especially in episodes written by Dwayne McDuffie, that a perfect balance was struck between her emotions and her noble bearing. Thanks for listening.